Well, hey, good morning. Uh, we are uh, kicking off a series in the book of Haggai this morning, short series, because Haggai is a short book, uh, just two chapters, so uh, just two weeks. This week we'll cover Haggai chapter one, uh, next week we'll cover Haggai chapter two. If you don't know where Haggai is, the table of contents is your friend, uh, no shame in that. And uh, if you grab one of those black hardback Bibles on your way in, uh, it's on page 743 uh, is where Haggai is in one of those. And feel free to keep that. That's our gift to you as a church. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those. Uh, I was reading a story this week uh, about a guy from New York named Marcin Muchalski uh, who uh, was walking on the Williamsburg Bridge in New York City on Easter Sunday morning at 7 in the morning in 2004. And as he was walking, he was approached by a mugger who uh, demanded that he give him his cell phone or he was going to shoot him. And Marson thought, like, he's not actually going to shoot me at 7 in the morning with all these people around on the bridge. And so he refused to give him his cell phone. Uh, and so the mugger made good on his threat and shot him in the leg. Uh, but that didn't deter Marson. He still, after with a bullet hole in his leg, refused to give this mugger his cell phone. And the story does end well because uh, apparently this freaked the mugger out, and so he ran off, and Marson was able to uh, get him arrested by calling the cops uh, with that cell phone. Uh, now, the, the funny thing about the story is, though, you would think, hearing that story, like, oh, he must have had, like, a first-generation iPhone, really expensive, really wanted to protect that, and just didn't feel like that was worth giving up. It was worth risking being shot over that. Uh, but you'd be wrong. The iPhone had not been invented yet in 2004. He didn't have a smartphone. He had a Nokia 3390. Uh, which is like one of those phones that looks like a little brick. It was $75 at the time. Uh, that's the phone he thought was worth potentially losing his life over rather uh, than giving that up. And, you know, some of you might say, well, he was vindicated. Like, he called the cops and got the guy arrested. But no, he was not. He has a bullet hole in his leg. And on top of that, like... He didn't know the mugger was not going to shoot him again. He had already shot him once. Dancing with death over a Nokia cell phone uh, is just really not a risk that you should be willing to take. Uh, the fact that he was willing to potentially lose his life over holding on to a Nokia shows that his priorities were just completely out of whack. Well, this is actually what God wants to address here in Haggai chapter 1 this morning. What our priorities are and what it looks like when we as God's people get our priorities out of whack and what it looks like uh, to get our priorities straight again. So let's look at this together in the text. We'll read all of Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. 
You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. God, would you uh, help us? Would you give us ears to hear, uh, hearts to believe, eyes to see? God, help us to know you. God, where uh, a rebuke is needed in our lives from this text, would you give us the grace to hear it and repent and turn, just like the people did uh, at the end of this chapter? God, would you help us? where we have gotten our priorities off, where we have loved other things more than you and prioritized things more than you, would you change our hearts? Would you help us to see your beauty in the ways that the temple points to you? Would you help us to be a people who are passionate about building the temple? I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Man, well, uh, I know many of you are new and were not here when we started the book of Micah back in June, and on top of that, the events of Haggai take place much later than the events of the book of Micah, so uh, to understand this text, I need to just uh, kind of set you up and set the scene of where we're at in the biblical story, and then uh, we'll be able to walk through it together. And so when God takes his people out of slavery to Egypt, he promises them that he's going to give them uh, the promised land, the land of Canaan, a place where they can dwell with him and he will be their God and they will be his people uh, and they will be his kingdom on the earth, a kingdom of priests that would minister to the rest of the earth. And so uh, as they journey through the wilderness, eventually God fulfills this promise and he brings them into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And after they've been in the land of Canaan for a while, they want to have a king and a kingdom for themselves, and so they do that, and the first king they appoint is King Saul. And King Saul does not do so hot, and so he's eventually replaced by King David, who does much better, and King David uh, wants to build a temple for the Lord, wants to build a permanent place to house God's presence 
in the land among his people, but God doesn't allow him to. Instead, his son Solomon uh, takes the throne after David, and he builds the temple, and he ushers the people of God into really what's the high point of the Old Testament. God's people are in God's place. They're living under God's rule through his king. They're experiencing his presence and his blessing in the temple. They're enjoying a lot of peace and prosperity. Everything really seems pretty great, but for all of that glory, that, that really quickly fades because for all of Solomon's wisdom, he's an idolater who loves foreign gods and leads the people uh, into worship of foreign gods. And so after Solomon, uh, his son Rehoboam takes the throne, and he's a fool, and so he ends up splitting the kingdom in two. Jeroboam, no relation, uh, really, it's, I know it's confusing, Jeroboam, he takes the ten northern tribes Uh, And they become known as Israel, or the northern kingdom. And then Rehoboam takes the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they become known as Judah, or the southern kingdom. And then from then on out, most of the kings in both the northern and southern kingdom are idolaters that lead the people astray, that lead the people into sin. Judah has a few good kings here and there, but mostly they all follow this pattern of idolatry. And, and way back in the book of Deuteronomy, before the people of God even got into the promised land, God promised that if they did this, if they turned aside from him and began to worship other gods, eventually he was going to visit the curses of the covenant on them and send them into exile. And so this is where we picked up in the book of Micah. Micah the prophet was sent to both the northern and southern kingdoms to prophesy and to tell them that exile was coming, and it was coming quickly unless they repented and turned back to God. Uh, Unfortunately, most of the people did not listen to Micah's preaching, and so exile eventually happens. Assyria comes in and takes the northern kingdom into exile, and then Uh, A little while after that, Babylon comes into Judah, into Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple, and then they take them into exile as well, back to the land of Babylon. And so the people are out of the land, they're captives in a foreign land, and the temple is destroyed. Uh, But about 50 years after Babylon takes the people into exile, Medo-Persia conquers the Babylonians, and uh, so now they're kind of king of the hill. They're the ones that are the big world power. They're the ones who are in control of God's people, and they're a little bit nicer to their captives than the Babylonians are. And so they, King Cyrus, the king of Persia at the time, he makes a decree that any one of God's people who wants to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple, they're free to go. And so you see this, you can read about this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The people start to come back to the land in waves. And in Ezra chapter 3, pretty soon after that first wave gets back into the land, they rebuild the foundation of the temple. But almost immediately after they rebuild the foundation of the temple, they start to encounter opposition from the Samaritans and other people around them. So much so that the Samaritans write a letter to the current king of Persia at the time and demand that he make them stop the work on the temple. And he writes a letter back and does that. He makes them stop working on the temple. And the new Persian kings keep popping up after that in the aftermath, but the people of God never pick back up building the temple. And now that's where we come with the book of Haggai. It has been 16 years since the people first laid the foundation of the temple and now Darius is the king of Persia. And so verse 1 tells us that this This prophecy, it's addressed to Zerubbabel, who's the governor of Judah. He's not the king because they're still a conquered people, and to Joshua, the high priest. And look at what verse 2 says about 
uh, what the people are saying. The Lord gives voice to what the people are saying about how, hey, now it's just not a good time for us to finish rebuilding the temple. Which sounds like a good excuse, does it not? Like, yeah, we'll get to it. It's important. We'll do it at some point. But, man, we faced a lot of opposition. And it's been a really hard and difficult season. We need to get our own lives and our own families back in order. And then we'll get back to rebuilding the temple. But what God shows is that those excuses are actually hypocritical garbage. That it shows that their priorities are all jacked up. Because God says through Haggai, He says, okay, you, you say you don't have time and money to spend on rebuilding my house, but that sure doesn't seem to be the problem when it turns to working on your own houses. Like, it looks like you're trying to get featured on a magazine for interior design. You've, you've added a whole wing onto your house. You've bought, you just dropped a couple grand on a new TV. You uh, have doubled your square footage. You spent every weekend the past year doing home addition and home improvement projects. Like they have a special reserve parking spot for you at Lowe's and at Home Depot because you go there so often. But please tell me more about how you don't have time and you don't have money to spend on my house. You see, with this question, God is exposing their hypocrisy and exposing uh, how jacked up they've gotten in their hearts. Because them focusing on rebuilding their own houses and neglecting rebuilding God's temple, it's not saying something about God. It's saying something about them. Because what God is not saying here is, hey, guys, I've been homeless for a really long time now. Can you please do something about that? What God is not saying here is, hey, that, that first temple was a pretty decent starter home, but I've been looking on Zillow, and I'm really ready to move into my dream home. Can you guys please do something about that? No, what, what Solomon prayed when he was dedicating the first temple is absolutely right. He prayed, God, behold, heaven and the highest of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. Like, God doesn't need, God fills heaven and earth. He doesn't need a nice home. He doesn't need a home at all. God is not telling them to rebuild the temple because he needs it, but because they do. And you can see this in the text, verses 7 and 8, when he says, consider your ways, go get the materials and start rebuilding the temple. What's the reason he gives in verse 8? So that he might take pleasure in it and so that he might be glorified. Take pleasure is the Old Testament's language for God taking pleasure in and accepting the sacrifices that were offered on the altar in the temple. It's a way to say that he is pleased with that and he's forgiving and accepting his people in spite of of their sin. And when he says that I might be glorified, in both the book of Exodus when they build the tabernacle and then first Kings when they build the temple, after the construction is done, God comes to fill the temple and live in the temple. And it says the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and the temple so much so that the priest can't even go in to minister in the tabernacle and the temple. Like this is where and this is how God lives among his people on the earth. It's how he manifests his presence among them in this special way. And so God is saying, rebuild my house, rebuild the temple so that I might live among you again and so that I might take pleasure in accepting your sacrifices and your offerings for sin. But the fact that the people have been in the land for almost two decades and have not rebuilt the temple shows that they really don't care about a relationship with God at all. 
The, the God of the universe has promised in His grace to move into their neighborhood, to live among them and have a relationship with them, but they really don't care about that. They're, they're much more concerned with their own lives and their own families. It, it shows they're really indifferent to having God in their lives at all. They're really concerned about building a nice upper middle class life with a nice family that really doesn't have any need for God in it at all. It'd be like if you got hired to work an entry-level job at Google. Uh, Google has almost 200,000 employees. What would your relationship to the CEO of Google be? You know, you'd probably know his name, and, and I imagine on occasion some of the decisions he makes would directly affect your job. But we all know, like, you wouldn't know him, he wouldn't know you, you wouldn't talk to him, he wouldn't talk to you, and you'd spend the vast majority of your days just going to work and trying to do your job well and spend time with your family and enjoy your life, not thinking about how to know and please the CEO. That's really how the people of God are treating God here. Like, yeah, he may exist off in the distance somewhere, I'm sure he's at the top of the ladder in charge of everything and running everything, but but we don't really know Him, and we don't really care to. Our lives are going pretty good without Him. We're focused on our own lives and getting those figured out first. It doesn't really matter if we have God in our lives at all. That's where the people are. And so God, in response, does something and has been doing something to wake them up so that they might repent and come back to Him. He says in verse 5, consider your ways. Think about what's happened to you. You've sown a lot. You've worked very hard, but you haven't harvested much, have you? You're constantly a little bit hungry. You're constantly going a little bit thirsty. You can't ever find a coat that keeps you warm enough. You put your check in your backpack, and it's like there's a hole in your backpack that it falls out of as soon as you put it in there. You put $1,000 in your savings account, and when you go back to get the money out, there's only 500 in there, and you didn't spend it on anything. God goes on in verses 9 through 11 and says He's been frustrating all of their plans and all of their dreams and causing them to struggle and giving them drought and lack and hardship. Why? Verse 9, because the temple still lies in ruins while they're focused on improving their own houses. Because they don't care about a relationship with God at all. Now, Two misconceptions you might be having about this text that I want to clear up. One, uh, it is very, very easy to read this text as a prosperity gospel type of text. It's as if God and our, our relationship with God works on like a barter system. As if God is saying here, hey, I've been cursing you because you've been doing bad, but if you'll turn around and you'll start doing good, then I'll bless you. I'll give you crops. I'll give you cattle. I'll make sure you end up becoming really rich. I will bless you financially if you'll turn around and just rebuild the temple and start obeying me. That's not what the text says, is it? That's not the reason God gives to rebuild the temple. What's the reason He gives to rebuild the temple in verse 8? So that He might take pleasure in it and so that He might be glorified. God is saying, rebuild the temple so that I may be glorified, so that you can walk with me, so that you can have a relationship with me, so that you can know me and I can live among you, not so you can get blessed financially. Like God Himself and His presence, that's the blessing that God is promising to people here. What, what God is also showing us is that this isn't a barter system. God's showing us that He does not bless disobedience. 
God frustrating their plans and frustrating their crops and frustrating them so that they have drought and lack and struggle is a grace so that they might wake up and and repent and turn back to Him. It's not a barter system where if we put good deeds in, we get blessings back out. It's more that God has made the world to work in a certain way. Uh, Men, think about when you're shaving your face. Obviously, you know you're supposed to shave with the grain in the direction that your facial hair is growing. And if you try to shave against the grain in the direction your facial hair is not growing, uh, then you usually get cuts and nicks and razor burns and irritation and, and ingrown hairs, all these visible, painful reminders to show you it really does not work to shave that way. Well, in the same way, God has made the world and He's made us to function in a certain way. God has made us to live with and for Him under His good rule, with His presence, with Him as our number one priority in our lives. And when we don't do that, we are living against the grain of the universe. There are going to be cuts and nicks and scratches and bumps and pain when we do that because God does not bless disobedience. He wants to wake us up and bring us back to Him. And then a second misconception about the text you might be having. Some of you might be thinking, oh, I know where this is going. I I knew it as soon as he read the text. We've got a building campaign coming up. That's why you chose this text, isn't it? You wanted to be able to guilt us. You wanted to guilt us and say, hey, why are you so focused on building onto your own houses while 584 South Riley Road needs renovations and furniture? But you'd be wrong. I'm not going to do that. That's, that's a bad application of this text. That's not God's message to us through this text. To show you that, I need to real quickly uh, run through and trace out this theme of God's presence that we're seeing here in the temple. I need to just trace it through the whole Bible to show you where we're at in the story. And so, because God's presence is one of the major themes of the Bible's story. And so, Uh, What we see when you read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, when you read them together as a whole, you see that, that God designed the Garden of Eden to be a temple, to be a place where He would live with His people and walk with them and know them intimately, and they would have His presence in a close, special way. Uh, He tells Adam in the garden to work and keep the garden. The same words that he uses later on in the Bible to describe the way that the priests are supposed to guard and serve in the tabernacle, and in the temple. Uh, Ezekiel 28 calls Eden the holy mountain of God, which is usually what the prophets and and psalms call uh, the temple and and the temple mountain uh, in those books. And then the biggest reason we know that the Garden of Eden was a temple is because God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's the same language that's used in Leviticus chapter 26 when he says... I will walk among you in this tabernacle and be present with you among uh, you as my people. I'll be your God. You will be my people. Which means that God made us and God made the world so that He could be present with us, so that we could know Him and have relationship with Him, so that He could be our God and we could be His people, so that we could walk with Him all our days. But... Adam and Eve's sin and this intimate presence we knew and had with God was broken and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, cast out of God's presence. But what we see when that happens is that God makes the promise 
that he is going to bridge the gap that our sin has opened up. He's going to close the distance. He's going to keep moving closer. He will fix what we have broken. And so when he takes the people out of slavery to Egypt, he says, he commands them, build the tabernacle, a tent, where I will live among you and be present uh, among your camp and travel with you as you go throughout the wilderness. And so they build the tabernacle and this happens. God's present with them and he travels with them. He lives in the middle of their camp in the tabernacle. And then when they get into the land, Solomon builds the temple, a more permanent house for God that's right in the middle of Jerusalem, right in the middle of the people so that God could live among His people in this permanent way. God just keeps moving closer and keeps closing that gap. But as we've talked about, the people continually disobey, and so they're sent into exile, and the temple is destroyed. But before and during the time that they're in exile, the prophets make all these incredible promises about how God's going to bring them back, and they're going to rebuild the temple, and it will be even more glorious than the first temple was, that God will be present with them in an even greater way, that He won't turn away from them like He did before because of their sin, that they will know Him, He will know them, they'll be His, His people, He will be their God. This is a promise that is given, but what we're going to see next week is that this temple that they rebuild here in Haggai is not the fulfillment of that promise. The fulfillment of that promise does not happen until Jesus. Jesus comes, and John tells us in his gospel that Jesus, the Word of God, that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And the word for dwelt there is tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. His body and his human nature become the temple, the place where God is especially present on earth, but in an even greater way because Jesus does not just, the Son of God does not just dwell in Jesus' body like he did in the tabernacle and the temple. He unites human nature to himself so that from here on out, he's God in the flesh. One person with two divine natures, divine and human, fully God and fully man. Jesus takes on our human nature so that in the end, we could actually become his temple. We could become the place where God's presence dwells because what the New Testament tells us is that once Jesus ascends into heaven, he pours out his spirit on the church. And as we heard in Ephesians chapter 2, we, the people who have the spirit, we become the temple. We become God's address on the earth. We become the place where God dwells on the earth. The church is now God's temple where he manifests his presence in a special way on the earth. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, we get this promise that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no need for a temple because we'll see God face to face. We'll walk with him and we'll know him in a way that was even greater than the Garden of Eden. And so because that's the Bible's story, if you want to know where to find God's temple now, if you want to know where God lives on the earth and where to find him, it's the church. The church is God's temple on the earth. And when I say that, let's be clear about what we're saying. Uh, the people of God who have been saved by Jesus and have covenanted together and gather and assemble together as the church, that's God's temple. That's the church. The church is not FCA, and it's not going to be 584 South Riley Road. The church is us, those of us who have been saved by Jesus and have covenanted to walk together and assemble and gather together. When we gather together as God's people, that's the temple. 
That's where God makes His presence known in a special way on the earth. That's where God lives on the earth. And so because that's the case, the message of this text is not, are you giving to the building campaign? The message of this text is, are you giving your life to building up your brothers and sisters here in the church? Are God and His people your number one priority? Well, how can you tell? Well, for the people of God in Haggai's day, it was the fact that they were so focused on improving their own houses and had no desire to rebuild the temple and have God come and live among them again. But for us, it can look like some different things. I'll I'll just focus on one. If the people of God in Haggai's day were neglecting relationship with Him and were neglecting each other and neglecting the temple to focus on their own lives, are you doing the same thing? What I mean by that is, are you so focused on your own life that you're neglecting to build up the temple, that you're neglecting to build up your brothers and sisters here in the church? Look, the the implications of the gospel, of being saved by Jesus, is that you don't belong to you anymore, that your life is not your own, that it's His now and it belongs to Him to do what He says with it, and following Jesus is not a solo project. Like these people that sit around you right now, they're not just accessories and side characters in your own spiritual journey. In, in fact, Jesus says that, that, uh, we, that as we build each other up, that we, demonstrate his love, that we demonstrate our love for Jesus by obeying His commands and by building up our brothers and sisters here in the church. In fact, in 1 John 3, Jesus says this is actually how you know you've passed from death to life, how you know that Jesus has saved you because you love your brothers and sisters here in the church. And so I'll just ask you a few questions to determine your priorities in this area. One, as just kind of a baseline starting point, how often do you actually attend on Sundays? How often do you gather together with God's church? And look, I I know that Uh, deployments and trainings and and work things pop up and travel happens and difficulties happens. I'm I'm really not talking about that. I'm talking about, do you still regularly have the conversation or have the thought process on Saturday night of, well, are we going to go to church tomorrow? Well, you know, I guess if we're not too tired when we wake up, I guess if we don't sleep in too long, I guess if the kids don't give us too much trouble getting out the door, uh, I guess that if all the stars align, then we'll go to church. Well, if you only go to church when all the stars align, the stars usually don't align. And if you're hardly ever here on Sunday mornings when the church gathers and does what's essential to its nature, how do you ever expect to be able to get to know people here and pray for them and care for them and love them and build them up in the way that Jesus calls us to? And if God manifests His presence in a special way when we gather together as His temple which he does, why would you not want to prioritize that? Another way to figure this out, a good question to determine this is, have you inconvenienced your life in any way to serve the church? And and by that, I mean your brothers and sisters. Have you inconvenienced your life in any way to serve God's people here? Would your weeks, would your life look any different if Jesus and his church were not a part of it? Or are they already such a small part of it that that nobody would really even know that they're gone? 
when you hear about a need that has popped up in the church, is your first thought, oh, I'm sure somebody else will take care of that. When you hear about the need for people in this church to be discipled, to have help following Jesus, is your first thought, oh, I'm sure their community group leader or one of the elders or one of the staff will take care of that. Again, if, if you follow Jesus, you don't belong to you anymore. And you can't just care about yourself and your own life and your own priorities. If you do, it shows that your priorities have gotten way out of whack. But look, I think we all know uh, me just trying to guilt us into this is really not going to change any of us. It's not actually going to work. I I could harp all morning on how you need to be less selfish, you need to care about people in the church, you need to put others before yourself, and none of us are going to do it, myself included. None of us are actually going to change. None of us are going to rearrange our priorities for more than a day or two. You know why? Because your priorities follow your loves. They take your marching or their marching orders from your loves. What I mean by that is whatever it is that you really want, whatever it is that you really love, you prioritize that so that you can have it, you can get it, or you can experience more of it. You'll rearrange your life and your time, and your money, and your schedule, so that you can have more of this. For example, I I know somebody, not here, uh, but I know somebody who recently has gotten really into golf, and since they've gotten really into golf, they've spent a ton of money on new clubs, they've spent a ton of hours uh, down the rabbit hole researching form for their swing on YouTube. Uh, I'm pretty sure they even hired a swing coach to watch videos of them and critique and help their form. Uh, They... Well, they will go early before work to get to the golf course, or they'll go straight to the golf course after work to get a quick nine in. Uh, they spend a ton of time daydreaming about how to improve their golf swing, and they spend the vast majority of their free time trying to get to the course or being on the golf course. Why? Because you rearrange your priorities to get more of what you love. Which means, if your priorities are out of order... It's because your loves are out of order. And so if you want to get your priorities straight, the way to do that is to first get your loves straight. If God and his people are not the number one priority in your life, it's because God's not the number one love in your life. It's because you don't love him the most. And me just telling you, hey, you need to love God more this week, that's not going to work either because that's not actually how we change what we love. If we want to change what we love, we have to have our hearts and our imaginations captured by something lovable, by something that's more desirable, that we want more than the thing that we're currently loving. Well, the good news is that's exactly what we get in Jesus. The destruction and rebuilding of the temple was a sign that pointed beyond itself to something more beautiful and something more glorious. In John chapter 2, Jesus comes to this rebuilt temple And he drives out people who are selling in the temple. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they get upset about this and they ask him, hey, what sign can you show us to prove that you have the authority to do something like this? And he says, here's the sign, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it back up. And they say, it's taken 46 years to rebuild this temple. How are you going to be able to rebuild it in three days? John tells us they didn't understand Jesus was speaking about the true temple, his body. 
Jesus' body would be destroyed on the cross and then raised up on the third day. And after Jesus is raised from the dead, John says the disciples remembered what Jesus had said and believed what the Scriptures said about Jesus. And one of the Scriptures they believe about Jesus is Psalm 69, where Jesus says to God the Father, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, the people of God in Haggai's day struggle to care about God and His people. So often we struggle to care about God and His people, but that's not the case when we turn to Jesus. Jesus so desired to have a relationship with us, so desired to build us up into God's house, that He freely gave up His life and He freely gave up His body to be destroyed, that his zeal for us to be built into God's house literally consumed him. It killed him. Jesus gave up his body so that he could become the sacrifice that God takes pleasure in, so that he could become the sacrifice that would pay for our sins. He freely allows his body to be destroyed so that we could be his body so that we could be rebuilt as His temple and have God among us, so that God's glory would not just dwell in our midst, but it would dwell all the way in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, so that God could always be with us and we could always be with God. Which means that that Jesus' zeal for you and I to be God's house, it means that when you did not care about God, God cared about you. And when you were not zealous for Jesus, Jesus was zealous for you. And when you were selfishly focused on your own priorities and your own life, Jesus gladly gave up his life for you. And seeing that and believing that and getting that into your heart, seeing Jesus' heart for the church and the love he has for his church, and that will lead you to rearrange your priorities so that you can serve the church, so that you can build up your brothers and sisters here so that you can work to see them flourish. And we get a really good picture of that here in verses 12 through 15 in Haggai. The people of God, God stirs up their spirits. They repent and they obey and they get to work on the temple. And listen to the promise in verse 13 that Haggai gives the people, that God gives the people through Haggai as they rebuild. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And this is the promise we have from God as we give ourselves to this, as we give our lives to building up His church. The promise is that God will be with us and that this is the work that God loves to bless. 1 Corinthians 14 says that if we're eager to see manifestations of the Spirit, if we're eager to see the Spirit move among us in visible, powerful ways, then we should strive to excel in building up the church. And I'll just tell you, if you get a heart, and if you get your heart captured by this vision of Jesus' love for the church and the way he had zeal for us to be built up into God's house, man, if you'll see that in the same way that you get creative in rearranging your priorities to get more of what you want and what you love, you'll get creative in the ways of of how to build up and serve people here in the church. You will find ways, you'll invent ways to bless and care for and serve and pray for and sacrifice and disciple so that men and women and children in this church can grow up into Jesus and flourish as his disciples 
if you'll give yourself over to this, if you'll get captured by this vision for the church, that the people that sit around you this morning, that this really is God's temple, that this is God's address on the earth, that this is where God lives, that these are the people that Jesus was so zealous to have as his own that he literally died to make it so. That's who and what the church is. Why would you not want to give your life to, to building that up? Why would you not want to get your eyes on the gospel and get your priorities straight? Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you um, for your word. God, as difficult as it may be, um, when it comes as a rebuke to that exposes the ways that all of us in this room have not done what we ought. We have not loved you as we should. We have not prioritized you as we should. We have not put you first in our lives. God, thank you that that wasn't a deterrent to you coming to save us. Thank you that you love and save and transform selfish and self-absorbed people like us. God, would you help us to be about this as a church, to be about building your temple, spreading your presence throughout the whole earth as we seek to have more people come to know the good news of the gospel. God, would you help us to care for, to see, to pray for, to build up our brothers and sisters here in the church. God, please do so among us. Please, like you stirred up the people in Haggai's day to get to work on the temple, would you stir up our hearts in this day even in this moment, uh, to build up the true temple, to build up your church, which is your body. Jesus, please help us to do so. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.